This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, currently in Montreal, Canada at the International AIDS Conference. This is the 24th meeting of the conference, which since 1985 has been bringing together researchers, policymakers, activists, advocates, and people living with HIV. And it's the second time the meeting is taking place in Montreal. The last time it was here in 1989 was in many ways you know, really a watershed moment. It was when activists, including people living with, affected by and vulnerable to HIV, organized to demand a presence at the meetings and a place at the table in terms of policy and programming around HIV prevention, testing, and treatment services. I'm joined today by two women who have been involved in a number of the meetings since then and who are engaged with organizations of sex workers, a key population of women and men who are vulnerable to HIV but who can face significant challenges in accessing resources and care because of laws that criminalize sex work or because of stigma and discriminatory practices that can lead health providers to overlook or even refuse to address their health needs. Bellister Abdallah is with KESWA, the Kenyan Sex Workers Alliance, and she is also the president of the Global Network of Sex Work Projects. And Ruth Morgan Thomas is the global coordinator of the Global Network of Sex Work Projects. So Ruth and Bellister, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, this is the first time the conference has met in person since 2018. The global COVID-19 pandemic, you know, starting in the beginning of 2020, pushed the conference that had been planned to convene in San Francisco and Oakland online. We've all experienced the pandemic in, in different ways since then. But I wanted to start by asking each of you to explain the work that your organizations are doing to reflect on the impacts of the pandemic on sex workers' livelihoods and access to health services during this period of quarantine and lockdown. And you know, just reflect on that period since 2018, you know, what, what this has been like for, for the people you work with and represent. So, Felister, let's, let's start with you. Okay, so during the pandemic for my community, uh, especially me coming from Africa, China to be specific, it was kind of difficult for us to operate or to participate in anything because it meant everything went back online. And most of the things were actually shut down. Plus even the facilities because they were full and busy taking care of people who had COVID. People who are living with HIV or any other diseases were like not existing anymore because people were concentrating more on COVID. So that became a little complicated because most of the sites uh, or hotspots were shut down. It means we could not operate as a community. So our workplaces were shut down. The clubs, 
everything because in Kenya there was a curfew. Everybody was supposed to be inside by 7 p.m., which is difficult for us because that is when our operating time actually starts. If you're operating in the streets, if you're working in the clubs, even in the brothels, so everything was actually shut down. And they didn't want to see anybody anywhere. And there was a lot of police brutality when they met some of the women who were trying to go outside maybe to see if they can earn something or get something to put a food on the table, which became very complicated for my community. So there was no income. There was no access to help by that time. There was nothing because this was a pandemic just came and we were not prepared as a community. So that was really difficult and complicated for us to operate in such a situation. Well, Kenya went through various phases of curfews, right? Like it would get lifted for a period and then come back. Um, so and that made things even more complicated in some ways. Yeah. And actually closing Nairobi or other cities. So if maybe we had sex workers who were unable and they were not earning within Nairobi and they wanted to go back to their rural area because they weren't able to pay their rents, it was very difficult because it meant the it meant the metropolitan was shut down it was closed you could not go in neither go out unless you are a doctor unless you have a letter that is permitting you to get out of nairobi so it meant us among ourselves like one house could have like 26 workers with their families so it meant we had to move for each other, as in, I, I cannot afford to pay my rent. Somebody else has a rent. We move in together so that we can be able to sustain ourselves. So Ruth, you're working with this larger global network of organizations. What were you hearing during this period of time when you know, it was very difficult to travel and people were, were not in touch with each other in the same way? So I think I mean, our network operates with maybe 230 members in 101 countries. And across them all, including in countries where sex work has been decriminalized, our community were not included in national emergency responses and social protection that's offered to other workers. And I think the story we hear from Kenya is very, very similar. So people were prohibited from working during the COVID pandemics. Their movements were restricted. But there was no consideration of the reason why everybody works is to pay the rent, to put food on the table for their children, to have a lifestyle that they want to have. And it was just like there was a forgotten community people. And I think that applied to the other key populations as well. The root of that was the criminalization of sex workers in nearly every country in the world, where we were denied the social protection, even where we were recognized as workers. In some countries, they still prohibited us from getting access to national social protection. I think the other thing which happened as a result of that is that our organizations really stepped up to the plate. So we have organized mutual aid schemes. In nearly every country, it was the sex worker community as solicitor was described, who actually provided for other community members. So there were financial schemes that gathered money, that gave money to people to pay rent. In other countries, people were putting together emergency personal hygiene and food packages and distributing them within the community. But that basically was the community protecting itself rather than the duty bearers actually stepping up and including it. So I think it, it was absolutely across the board in every single country. 
So it's interesting, I mean, this period when we've seen so much polarization, you know, around the world over mask wearing and mandates, it sounds like your communities have really been able to come together and support each other, perhaps in large part because of this lack of recognition for the loans that so many governments, you know, gave out or grants to uh, to labor organizations and that kind of thing. I think the community also then responded with services because there are a number of countries where members have good relationships with clinics, medical clinics, ARV clinics, where they managed to set up outreach services so that people could still get ARVs or could still get condoms or other medicine that they required for conditions. And again, it was the communities that did that to protect one another rather than the services thinking. And because the community were prohibited from going to the clinic. And, and we all know what happens if you don't continue to take care. Yeah. I think that's the case. Like in Kenya, we identified sex workers in Kenya. This is the time we saw the togetherness of community coming together because this is when we realized that most of the sex workers living with HIV did not have food, yet they had to take their drugs. So we decided to do a door-to-door where sex workers were able to be provided by their drugs. But also food. There were some sex workers who were chased out of the houses. Their things and children were outside. That's where we decided maybe we might not have money by that time to pay that person's rent. But we can be able to provide a space for the sex workers and the children to be able to move in, have somewhere to stay, have food and be safe. A lot of violence has also occurred that time because it was difficult for my community to operate because you are used to get money all the time. And we were shut down for over months, like three, four months, then they uplift, then they shut for other months, then they uplift. So it was very difficult for the community to operate. So while they were forcing themselves going out to operate, knowing it is risky, a number of sex workers really faced uh, violence. Why? Because there was no protection by that time. Police was an enemy. Their problem was seeing people outside, not protecting, but actually chasing people away from the roads. So it meant people spending nights in, in places that are even they know it's dangerous for them, but for the security, for you to avoid getting arrested, you're forcing yourself to stay in a place that is not safe and secured for you as a person. And we had a high number of even sex workers being murdered, which really went high at time. Because you sleep in a place and in the morning you are found dead. And we don't have anybody to ask because everyone was locked inside. So many of the cases just went free because we could not be able to identify who really is the perpetrator. Because by that time, everyone was just not to be on the ground by that time. Sounds like what you're saying is not only was this a period when it was difficult to work because the normal venues where you would work were closed down. I mean, everyone had to be inside at 7 p.m. But then... On top of all that was this lack of security. I mean, there was a very antagonistic, maybe the relationship with police was antagonistic before, but became even more um, extreme during this period of fear about this unknown COVID-19 and you know, just the enforcement of these curfews. But I, I wanted to ask about the, the community's organization of, of delivery of medicines and that kind of thing. I, this is something you mentioned in the, the talk yesterday that, that I attended. Um, you know, I think WHO has recommended for, for many years kind of a decentralized process to some extent, but, you know, really, you know, engaging um, communities in the, the delivery and support of medications, but it's been, it's been hard to implement in a number of places, but it sounds like this was kind of a, a forcing factor in some ways. And I just wanted to ask if you think those practices will stay running of clinics in the absence of the official 
public health officials having sex workers really delivering to each other and providing that kind of counseling and doing more of the outreach, you know, around medications? Or do you think that as things kind of go back to normal, this will go away? COVID taught us a lot, mm-hmm. also as a community. And there are strategies that we implemented during COVID and we take a look at them and we say, this is something we really want to continue doing because there will be a sex worker who maybe is bedridden, who cannot be able to come back. But now that we have the motorcycles, because during that time, we actually worked out and got motorcycles where we were, the outreach workers were able to take medications door to door to sex workers who really needed it. Or there was a sex worker who was somewhere sent an alarm and say, I am in trouble. The motorcycle will go there, pick the sex worker and bring them to a safer space. You see, another sex worker will drive the motorcycle, pick something that is needed, even if it's food. There was food distribution that time. If you go on social media, you see me carrying a baggage on top of my head because I was actually going to the houses of sex workers where they were. They had put themselves together. They were like, we are here, we have somewhere to sleep, but we don't have food. And I'm like, this is something that among ourselves, we actually put it on a website and social media, sex workers to sex workers support. You have 10 shillings, you have 20. Remember, there's another sex worker who doesn't even have water to drink. Remember, there's a sex worker whose children don't have clothes to put on. So whatever you have, if you can be able to distribute that, then yes. So even that is what works with medication. And this is one of the things that we've picked. We've said, this is a strategy we can use as a community. Let's continue giving our members medication. Let's make it as easy and as simple and as accessible as possible. Because if you cannot be able to come since maybe transport is expensive, maybe you do not want people to know you are going to that facility, there are so many reasons for you not to be able to come. But there are a lot and a million reasons for us as community leaders, as people who are committed to come to you and tell you it is okay. The drugs are here. The service is at your, it, it is at your doorstep. Friendly and available and the way you want it. So counseling, services, delivery of drugs, it's available for any sex worker at whatever time that they need. And that's a strategy that we borrowed from this COVID time. It all depends on whether the medical profession who have resisted the task shifting that's been advocated for years trusts us now. We've, we've demonstrated that we can continue providing life-saving services and support when they come. And it's not so much as we can say we can do it, we can show the impact of our work during the pandemic. There is still a bit of lack of accepting that community-led services are to be trusted with these important things. Um, and so I'm going to say we can do it. We have evidence in every single region of our community providing these services during the pandemic when health workers were not allowed to or wouldn't. But whether or not they want to reclaim those services, because they will have to pay for them if we continue this. And I think that's about allocation of resources. And the new global aid strategy clearly talks about community-led services. Not just advocacy, not just prevention, but across treatment as well. And I think it's time we step up to actually implement the strategies and guidelines that now exist for community-led services. Well, I want to turn to this year's conference. The theme this year is re-engagement and follow the science. Let's focus on re-engagement for a second. Ruth, you've been to many of these conferences in the 90s, kind of in the earlier years, and then uh, more recently, since the Vienna conference in, in 2010. So why are you here this year? And what are you hoping to see come out of the conference in terms of this 
re-engagement? How do, how do you understand that the meaning of re-engagement and what are you looking to see? I struggle with the concept of re-engagement because we've never stopped engaging. As, as you said, I've been at every conference since 2010, bringing representatives from the global network to have their voices heard. So we've always been here and engaging. Um, I also, in that period, has held conferences in the US twice where my community sex workers are prohibited by law from entering the US if they've sold sex in the last 10 years. So we organized protests and alternatives and we did our own things we do when people shut us out and deny us our rights. So we've never stopped engaging. I don't know who it is they want to re-engage with because they never really engage with us. We held a satellite, as, as you know, with the other key population networks. It was early in the morning. But the people who should have been in the room to listen didn't come. They went to the academic and scientific presentations that were scheduled at the same time as the community one. So while I absolutely believe we need to be here to engage in the advocacy, We've never stopped trying to engage with academics, with policymakers, with IES, to ensure that the community voices that are accountable and representative actually have a meaningful platform. So, Felister, I, I think yesterday I heard you talking, you know, a bit about the importance of moving beyond the idea of just engagement to leadership and community-led organizations and community-led processes. I mean, at this point in the HIV epidemic, I mean, we're now 40 years in, you know, is it enough to just kind of talk about engagement and learning from each other, or does there need to be something more in terms of really not just a seat at the table, but, but maybe setting the table or being at the head of the table? So I think personally for me, it's about reclaiming the spaces, claiming the spaces and identifying where the power is. One of the things that I've started with my community and I have identified myself as power, as a community, I am power because I can make change for as long as I know if I take step one and two, this is change. Because for some time, even PESOs and global funds never used to fund community-led organizations. For years, community-led or sex workers-led organizations were not allowed to run their own facilities, like health facilities or drop-in centers. But right now, it's about identifying the powers and make ourselves genuine partners. It's not about equal partnership. I've sat into these conferences, I've gone into many places, and people will always say we are equal, but we are never equal. But what we need to do is to be genuine to each other. Genuine partnerships work. And when they are not ready to provide them as a community, we take them with power. Because we identify where our power is. In Kenya today, we have sex workers-led organizations that are running clinics. In Kenya, we have sex workers leaders who are sitting at the CCM to make decisions about where the money goes. And if they do not want to speak our language, we decide not to sign. And we do not endorse the language that does not fit with us as a community. So we have tried other lenient communications and engagements which were not working for us. Because they kept on showing us all the time how we can't do it. And years kept on going and we kept on being left behind in the name of equal partnership. And this time we sat down as leaders and we said we have to re-strategize. We are part and parcel of responding to HIV. We are claiming our spaces, we are taking them and we're taking leadership with them. If they are not putting a seat on the table, we will pull our own seat and take it back to the table and we shall have the conversations with them. As the conference winds down, 
what messages will you take back from this convening to your networks? And let me just ask, you know, are you hopeful that it will be possible to make progress on the legal reform that is so important, but also to have greater recognition of community leadership in these efforts to protect sex workers' health and rights? Or, you know, especially as we, you know, enter this phase of intense focus on pandemic preparedness and response, right? I mean, we've, there's a lot of pressure now to think about how we integrate HIV services with pandemic preparedness. And what do you see that meaning for the, the important work that you've already been doing and, and really building up this community leadership? So I think the message that we take back from these conferences hasn't changed in all ways. It's not that we're being left behind in the conference because they are giving us space, but nobody seems to be listening to the communities. And, and yet we have to acknowledge, you know, 70% of new infections globally now are amongst key populations in our sexual partners. That's gone up in the last five years from 42%. And our messages haven't changed. Um, we're still saying the same things five years ago. We need to prioritize key populations. I think the impact of criminalization is known, has been known for years. We've got the scientific evidence now comparing between countries. And so it's not that I don't have hope because I absolutely have faith in the sex worker communities around the world that we will keep on advocating for our right to health, our right to work. But I'm not sure this conference has added anything to that or to the policies changing at a national level. We do have the new um, WHO guidelines for consolidated guidelines for populations that are now saying we have to prioritize these structural barriers. And they were in the previous guidelines, but they weren't up front, they were at the end, and now they're up front. So there's not a change in what they're recommending, but I think the priority of that change. And I hope somehow we're getting through to some policymakers in some countries, that they actually need to work with our communities to ensure that they can address the pandemics of HIV that are still happening amongst our community. I joined a session about black people and people were talking about colonialism. And this is a conversation that has been happening with the activists a lot. And a black woman student said, oh, you know, the, the white people and all these conversations that they were having. Then I was sitting there with Koli Utelezi, a sex worker from South Africa, a leader, and I told her, it's very interesting how people know how to shift blame. This is a black woman standing talking about white power. Yes, it is an issue, but it is still an issue for me as a sex worker. When a black woman who has been given power to do an opening speech and not being able to mention sex workers into their speech, are we building each other? Before we start taking blame on each other, let's look at the little things that can make change in the space that we're given as leaders and as people, black people, white people, but as a community in general. So a space is really important. What you say is really important because it reflects back to other people. Personally, when the opening speech happened, I felt left out as a sex worker who is black, as an African sex worker, because I think we are beyond leaving other people behind. If you're looking at reaching the 10, 10, 10, and we still cannot mention the word sex work in the opening speech, then we still have a lot to do, but we're still not giving up as a community. 
So there are guidelines in place. There's been decades of research around the impacts, the positive health impacts of decriminalization and also of community provided services. And yet, you know, it sounds like in some ways you still struggle to be mentioned in major speeches and recognized, but also to be heard, even if even if there is acknowledgement that, that there's not a real absorption of the message. What will be your priorities going back home and you know, really continuing to work? We've got the global fund replenishment is coming up. There will be new rounds of, of funding and, and involvement in country coordinating mechanisms and that kind of thing. But all this focus as well on pandemic preparedness and integration of, of HIV work into, into that. How do you see your work taking shape as that focus on the PPR work really, really moves forward? Do you see new openings for really kind of creating greater visibility of your groups and, and their particular strengths and opportunities? Or will this in some ways become more challenging because of the, I wouldn't say disappearance of HIV, but integration of HIV into that work? I think... We will continue to do what we do. Mm-hmm. We're known as a very fierce social movement um, who insists their voices are heard whether people want to hear them or not. I think after every single conference, we go back, we look at what has come out of the conference that might benefit our community at national level, and we create resources so that the community are aware. So we'll be producing a Smart Sex Workers Guide on the new WHO guidelines for sex work. They actually integrate STIs and hepatitis for the first time. It's not a silo of HIV, and I think the integration is welcomed by our community. Um, so I don't think that um, we will see us being invisibilized. I think the um, STI pandemics that are also happening around the world um, mean that, that we should be at the table, and we will insist on being at the table, and we will provide our communities with the tools to take to their government to take to their local government and continue to cause as much trouble as we can. I think they say that sex workers do it better and we will keep on doing it better and better and better as a community because we shall not stop until we get to a safe working environment, until we get to a legal environment that is protecting us as sex workers until we get to an environment that recognizes us as human beings and recognize our work and we can be able to enjoy uh, the, the other fundamentalism that other citizens within our countries and regions are enjoying. We will keep doing it better. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a, a good agenda for, for the next uh, <laughs> the next period. Yeah. Um, so Ruth Morgan Thomas and Felicia Abdallah, thank you very much for joining me today and good luck to you and your efforts for the years to come. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.